Good morning. Welcome to this week's edition of Let's Get Growing. I'm Gary Folio, your host, along with Bob Dodds from the Lee County Extension Office and Regional Director mm. of Extension. Yeah. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, Gary. It's good another, to be here. Another beautiful day. It feels like the weekend just passed. I think it did. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. For I, our listeners, we do have to yeah. uh, profess that, uh, or confess, I guess, that we are recording right. this on Monday yes. instead of uh, the weekend, uh, our Saturday show, or even when we record on Friday. So if we uh, make a few... Uh, observations uh, with later on in the week, like cooler temperatures. Oh my gosh, that would be wonderful. It's coming. Good. You know, I'm going to hold you and, to that, uh, Gary. Okay. And, and um, so we'll have some cooler temperatures later on in the week. Uh, that's what the weather people are saying, if you can believe weather people. That's right. That's and, right. Uh, so we're recording this on Monday, and we just wanted everybody to know that, just in case we do. Uh, if Bob makes a statement that right. isn't correct later on in the week. Yes, if I say something that doesn't make any sense, which which kind of might happen quite often on our program, I'm afraid, Gary. Um, I wanna, I'm want i very happy to say that we're finishing, and we've had great fairs, and I, I mean that with all respect. We've, we've finished up with our fourth fair. Uh, Des Moines County wrapped up uh, Monday, and uh, I'm really very pleased. It was a great fair, plenty warm for all the county fairs, but we're now starting to turn our attention to the state fair. But what's really great is I'm going to have the opportunity here the rest of the week to get caught up on some emails. And so I've been very fortunate to hear from quite a few of our listeners, and I appreciate your emails very much. They are great questions, and I enjoy answering them. And I also appreciate your input because a number of your questions somehow become topics on the air for our program and so we appreciate Gary and I both appreciate your comments and oftentimes I'll share a couple of questions with him that I received from you so please keep those coming and please do uh, continue to send photos of insects and disease problems and questions they they are very helpful the photos are it is it's nice to be out in the uh, public and whether or not you're you're um, getting some things for the house, and somebody comes up right. and tells you, you know, they listen to the show every Saturday morning, that. and how well they like Bob Dodds, and that's just great. That's that, <laughs> the heat's definitely getting to Gary here. There's no question about it. That's for sure. That's for sure. No, no it's it's a uh, it's a good time. We enjoy doing it, and we enjoy hearing from the we do. Hear, hearing from the public. And I hope we answer the questions. We do try that, that uh, come to us. Well, let's get started. A couple of them today that we've received or we've spoken about. We spoke about it last week again, but boy, there's no question the crabgrass is really making a nice comeback. And I thought that we had a pretty good control on it, but all of a sudden it's starting to show up here in August. And so that uh, simply means that there was a few small ones that came late. Probably the best way to control them, I think, this time of the year is to go out and spray them with Roundup. And so... um, We'll talk about that when we come back. I have you I hold that thought. Okay, we'll take Gary. a break here. Word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Well, let's get growing. Today we're going to talk about a type of garden that can be both entertaining to watch and very educational to learn more about nature. I'm here at the Iowa Arboretum with Donald Lewis from ISU. And I guess, first of all, Donald, what exactly is a butterfly garden? A butterfly garden is just a modified flower garden where you have given some special consideration to the needs of butterflies in hopes of having more butterflies in that area so you can enjoy watching them. To do that, we need to think of two different considerations. One is butterflies need a nectar source, which is what they're doing when they're perched on top of flowers to feed on the sugar waters that those flowers 
produce. So the concept is to have a diversity of plants that will be in bloom all through the summer and have those plants that are producing nectar to attract the butterflies. The second concept is, if you're going to increase the number of butterflies in an area, you need to raise caterpillars. And caterpillars need to feed on plants, and different caterpillars have different host plant requirements. And so your garden would incorporate weeds, flowers, and other plants that the butterflies will find attractive for laying their eggs, and then those eggs will hatch into caterpillars that will increase the number of butterflies in your garden. So what are some of the other requirements for a successful butterfly garden? It's a pretty short list. It can be any size. It probably needs to be in the full sun. You need some protection from wind. You need a little water source, which can be nothing more than a bird bath, and then some resting places like stones or rock paths or some mulched areas where the butterflies can rest. But most importantly, you need that diversity of plant material. Okay, thanks, Donald. And if you would like more information on butterfly gardening, be sure to log on to our websites. For Gardening in the Zone, I'm Liz Gelman. Step over here, sir. I put up with a lot, and while I'm forced to tolerate airport security screeners juggling my junk in public, what I won't tolerate is a power blower that won't run. That's why I use Echo Power Blowers, professional-grade power blowers backed by a five-year warranty. Armstrong Small Engine, two miles north of Donaldson, Highway 218. Use an Echo Power Blower. Get serious. That sounds too good to be true. It's easy to grow, multiplies like crazy, colorful, and can live practically anywhere. Ray Von Holt from the Iowa Arboretum is with me. And Ray, tell us more about what we can grow successfully in our own backyard. Well, today I'd like to talk about daylilies. And the botanical name for daylilies means beautiful for one day. And that's what each trumpet-shaped bloom does. It blooms for just one day. Hmm. But there are several buds on each stock, and so you do have continuous bloom throughout the summer months. The foliage is also quite nice, and it's a beautiful um, clump growing perennial, and so even when it gets done blooming, the foliage does add something to your perennial garden. Mm -hmm. Now, are these lilies the same that you see along the countrysides and the ditches? No, they really are not. Um, the old ditch lilies, are, as they're called, um, are quite invasive and probably not something you'd want to add to your garden today. There's just so many new varieties with a wide range of color, um, almost every color except blue. And an advantage to planting daylilies um, in your garden or in your home landscape is that they provide such wonderful erosion control. So that's why you see them so often um, planted on hillsides or around ponds. Okay, and they're really easy to grow. They really are. Okay. Even if you don't have a green thumb, you can grow daylilies. They will grow just about in any conditions, but they do prefer full sun in a well-drained soil. Um, also, they're very disease resistant, very few diseases, and um, if you do um, grow daylilies in your garden, you already have them growing, um, the perfect time to propagate would be the month of September. Okay, great to know. And if you would like more information on daylilies, be sure to log on to our websites. For Gardening in the Zone, I'm Liz Gelman. KSB Bank has been in existence since 1868, proudly serving our customers. We have strong roots and a history of providing excellent service to generations. So if you need banking products and services, stop in at one of our four convenient locations and let our dedicated employees work with you to start your money growing. KSB Bank, member FDIC. 
Strength you can bank on now and in the future. And we're back with Let's Get Growing. We're talking a little bit about crab crabgrass, yep. and uh, yeah. of course, we talked about it last fall a little bit. We did, and. Um, one of the things I would just say, if you controlled most of it, but you have some spots where the crabgrass is pretty thick, I would really encourage this time of the year. Uh, Roundup does not volatilize like the 2,4-D products do. Um, so do go out and maybe in the morning or late at night or when it cools off um, and go out and spray either those areas where you do have some crabgrass or maybe if you have just a few plants, you might want to just mix up a jar of Roundup or a container of Roundup using about 10, 5% solution. 5% will be plenty. Um, in other words, if you have 100 ounces of water, you want to add 5 ounces of Roundup. But just simply take a foam brush and kind of touch those plants, kind of saturate them, just the plants, uh, just the crabgrass plants, and in about uh, 4 or 5 days, you'll start to see them brown. Then later on toward the end of August on into September, we might light, might come into those areas and just lightly work that soil a little bit and then simply reseed that area. I think that's a good solution on our smaller lawns and areas where we don't have a huge number of, of plants. One of those plants that's really been a challenge for us as well this year in the lawns has been nimble will. And nimble will is kind of an interesting uh, weed. It is very dark green, has an interesting texture. It's very, very fine. And, you, and, and it just kind of shows up in patches. And this is a plant, again, that we can use some Roundup on. Last year I saw some small areas in our lawn. This year I'm seeing a lot of areas in our lawn. And so we're going to go in there with Roundup and, and kind of kill those areas out and then come back again the end of August, first part of September, and reseed those areas. So this is a good time. If you do have some reseeding to do, you might want to be real... You might want to ask or contact uh, the Lee County Extension Office, maybe even go on the Iowa State University Extension Publications, or I should say the Iowa State University Extension Store. There are a number of publications available to help you in selecting grass seed, in preparing areas to be reseeded, uh, also what type of fertilizer to apply. Um, if you do need to take a soil test, there are some publications there to help you as well. So those are some things to think about. Um, a couple other questions that we sure have been receiving a lot of question I mean a lot of questions on tomatoes and peppers just simply not setting fruit or peppers right. and of course we talked about that a lot Gary talking about temperatures up over 85 degrees Fahrenheit causes those blossoms to simply drop and they're just not going to set tomatoes or peppers and that's kind of true of zucchinis as well so these temperatures have been very very difficult for tomatoes and peppers to set is it true the hotter and drier the the temperature peppers get hotter? Um, I I don't think so. I think that's determined genetically. So I don't think the temperatures are going to have too much to do with that. Um, there are some thoughts about cucumbers having a real strong taste, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't. Uh, I guess I wouldn't argue with that, Gary. I haven't seen too much uh, research done on that, but uh, the Scoville scale kind of tells you how hot a pepper is. Right. And uh, so usually um, it's genetics more than the than And the habaneros weather. are just really great just to eat they right off the are. bar. They are <laughs> wonderful. The there they are. I, for certain people. for pretty Yeah, let, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but we've just had so many questions on, on plants just not setting tomatoes or peppers, and it's really just due to the temperatures where the I blossoms I always heard that, up. that. The, yeah, the drier it was, the and peppers they, they get a little. I wouldn't argue harder. with that. I think it does bring out those those strong te- strong tastes. That's right. for sure. But I think the genetics are going to play a huge role in that. Sure. 
One of the other things that we've seen a lot, uh, we've had a lot of leaf disease on tomatoes, and again, that kind of ties back with the high humidity that we've been experiencing here for the last couple of weeks. If you prefer not to use a fungicide, you can go ahead and just pull off those lower leaves, and that will help for that disease not to spread up onto the plant. We should be doing some watering, and we talked a little bit about watering, but again, we want to make sure that we're watering just seldom. In other words, maybe once a week, but we want to water deep. And so we should be adding at least an inch to two inches of moisture. With these unbelievably high temperatures and dry weather conditions, we may have to go to watering twice a week. And of course, if we're on sand, then we want to double. If we're adding an inch to an inch and a half on some of our heavy soils, we may want to go up to three inches on our sandy soils. And again, we want to water early in the morning so that those plants have a chance to dry off fairly quickly so that we reduce the amount of leaf disease uh, that will show up on our plants. And let us remember, we've had, I've had a few phone calls and a few conversations, insecticides control insects, fungicides control fungi, which is disease, um, back, uh, I should say herbicides control weeds. So we want to make sure that we're talking about the right product for the right um, use so if we're using a fungicide to control weeds, that's probably not going to work too well. And if we're using a herbicide, thinking that we're controlling some of our leaf diseases, that's not going to be effective either. <coughs> so keep those in mind when you're using <coughs> these different products. Excuse me. Also, cut flowers. We do have a few flowers in these beautiful temperatures. The roses are still doing well. We should be finishing up fertilizing the roses. Probably should have done that probably a couple of weeks ago. We want to make sure that we're watering these roses quite deeply and quite often. Roses take a lot of moisture to do well. So if you're seeing some problems with your roses, probably we need to increase the irrigation if, 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 that's, um, if you're not watering them. Um, also, for cut flowers, we want to make sure that we water or we cut flowers early in the morning when the plant's plumb full of moisture or as full of moisture as possible. And then we want to take them in the home, probably run them underwater, uh, the stems, and then recut the stems, place them in a nice vase, add fresh kind of water, tempid water, tepid water, and then maybe add some something that will extend. You can get this from your florist or at many of, the, many of our flower shops or garden centers where this will definitely extend the life of those flowers. But cutting those in the morning is very, very important. And make sure you have some sharp scissors so that you don't crush the stems. I know it's been a challenge the last couple of years uh, with planting trees, and I know we talk mm. an awful lot about planting trees, but we had Operation Relief, Relief right? Exactly. Uh, did we have any casualties? That Yes, we have, and that's, that's a great point, Gary. We want to make sure that we're really watering those trees at least an inch, and we need to water. Uh, I think sometimes we plant them in the spring, and then we kind of water them for half the season, and then we forget about them. Right. And we want to make sure that we're mulching. I know some of those we've had a lot of... <coughs> A lot of weeds starting to grow in around those trees. We want to make sure and control the crabgrass that loves to show up this time of the year around those newly planted trees. But make sure that we're adding at least 5 to 10 gallons of water per tree per week. I think that's very important. Um, and we really should do it on into the second year. And sometimes we think that we need to fertilize or we need to prune. And really, for the first year, first few years, really, just doing a good job of watering will, will go a long, long ways in protecting those trees and, and helping them get through this hot summer. This and is when we lose them, this well, time of the year. Well, we've talked about uh, different trees and how they, how they branch out at a short distance from the ground right. and how difficult right. that can be. But during very hot times... 
Right. Don't they tend to branch out? They do. They suck. Do you cut them back? Not this time of the year. We want to just let them, you know, we want to keep as many leaves on that tree as we possibly can. So you're right. Exactly right. We will start to see some suckers and... And uh, we want to make sure and just kind of let them be for now, and we'll tend to them maybe maybe even not this coming winter, but the next winter. Okay. Because we'll just kind of do that gradually and slowly. We want as many leaves on that tree as we possibly can have. And while, that's a great point. While you brought that up, Gary, please forget about, or please remember, please remember, <laughs> I'll get this right. It's the heat, I think. But please remember, we're going to not prune um, oaks. Uh, especially right. now. These trees are under a lot of stress with the moisture situation. And uh, even if we, have, if we do have some limbs that have been damaged, let's make sure and just use some pruning tar on the oaks and just do some very light. Uh, just, we want to just remove damaged limbs. And we'd really like to wait until winter right. to do it's that as much as possible. It's been a difficult two or three years. It really has. It has. We don't, we don't want anything happening to our oaks. That's, that's exactly sure. right. And we have been sending in some samples for it, oak wilt is a disease that's, that we're most concerned about. And if we do some pruning during the growing season, that can be a problem because it is carried by the beetles, uh, the small black sap right. beetles. So we want to make sure that we're... We're not uh, doing any pruning. We have seen it's a vascular disease, and we have seen some of that showing up on some of our oaks. And so we want to make sure and be very, very careful. If you do have an oak that's kind of died kind of quickly and you'd like to know the cause of it, we do have uh, all we need is some, some, some twigs from that plant or from that tree. They need to be about the size of a pencil and about a foot long. They need to come from that area that's showing that disease or some of that dieback, and we can send that on up to Iowa State University, the pathology lab, and we can have it diagnosed as to whether or not it was oak wilt that caused the problem. Um, so those are some thoughts on trees, and um, we'll talk a I didn't little mean bit more to get about that. No, that's good, Gary. We'll come back to some other things you know, I have shortly. You know, I have to say things as I think You do, them. and you do a great <laughs> job, at, and we appreciate it very much. Appreciate We're going to take a break here. A word from our Thanks, sponsors. We'll be right back with Let's Get Growing. I put up with a lot. And even though I'm standing here holding my wife's purse-sized puppy who is currently yapping in my face... What I won't put up with is outdoor power equipment that won't work. That's why I use Echo Outdoor Power Equipment. Professional-grade equipment backed by a five-year warranty. As for Echo Power Equipment at Armstrong Small Engine, two miles north of Donaldson, Highway 218. Use Echo. Get serious. This is Cindy Haynes with a Garden Calendar Minute. Eating homegrown grapes is a unique treat for some Iowans, but determining when to harvest the grape clusters can be a bit tricky. The color, size, sweetness, and flavor of the berry are the most useful indicators of maturity in grapes. Depending on the cultivar, grapes change from green to blue, red, or white as the berries mature. But don't let color be your only clue to maturity, since in many cultivars the berries will actually change color long before they are fully ripe. Mature grapes are also full size and less firm to the touch. They will develop a distinctive sweet flavor when they are ready to harvest. So taste a few to determine optimum flavor, sweetness, and maturity. When harvesting grapes, be sure to use a sharp knife or pruners to remove the entire cluster cleanly. Store harvested grape clusters in perforated plastic bags in the refrigerator. Then you will have grapes to enjoy for up to two months. For Iowa State University Horticulture Extension, I'm Cindy Haynes. Well, down at Gate City Seed, we've been talking about the weather again. It's hot, it's hot, and even though it's a little bit nicer, we still don't get a whole lot done outside, but that's okay. 
But the bugs are trying to come inside too. Hey, it's nice and air-conditioned and cool inside, or we've got a nice breeze inside. Bugs want to come in. We can stop them at Gate City Seed. We have the 38 Plus. We have professional strength spray. Gets the bugs. Doesn't get you. We would not sell you anything that is not safe. But this really works. Best thing that even a professional can use. Inexpensive. Available at Gate City Seed Company. Let's fix those bugs. Have a good summer for ourselves inside. Come see us at 824 Main in Keokai. And we're back with Let's Get Growing. We want to take a moment and thank you, the listener, for tuning in each Saturday morning. And we certainly want to thank our sponsors. Uh, if you get a chance or you're in one of their stores, uh, stop and tell them thanks for sponsoring Let's Get Growing. You listen to it and uh, you really appreciate their their help in the community. So uh, most of our sponsors are, are sponsors that provide service uh, related to agriculture or horticulture, and we really appreciate all their support over the years. And, and uh, so feel free to say something to the owners every once in a while and let them know that you're, you're listening. Exactly. That's right. That's right, Gary. You bet. We were talking a little bit about fungicides, and I wanted to, and, and some of the other products that we use, but we have been with the high temperatures and high humidity. Um, this is a perfect time for disease to st- start to show up. And I wanted to talk about fungicides and how to use them effectively. First of all, fungicides are a pesticide that can kill or inhibit the growth of fungi in plants. And this is true of tomatoes and true of lawns and true of our trees as well. Fungicides can be classified or based on how they are absorbed or how they move around in the plant tissue. And they're also um, whether they cure or prevent. So those are some things to remember. So when we talk about contact versus systemic, contact fungicides are what we call protectants. They're not absorbed by the plant, and they do stick to the plant's surface. And they provide really basically kind of a protective barrier that prevents the fungus from entering or damaging the plant tissue. When we talk about systemic plants or products, also known as uh, penetrants, they are absorbed by the plants and they're able to move from the site of the application to all the other parts of the plant. And some of those systemics are ones that we use in our roses quite a bit. That, that's a really good example. Um, preventative versus curative. Uh, preventative fungicides work by preventing the fungus from getting into the plant and the preventative fungicides must come into direct contact with the fungus and they have to be applied pre, pre-applied to the new plant tissue. So when we have new material, then we need to retreat, and that's very, very important as far as that goes. And then, of course, curative means simply that the plant shows the disease and then we apply this fungicide to control the disease or to stop it. So those are some things to remember. Um, I guess a couple of things that are really, really important, and we probably don't spend enough time talking about this, Gary, but it's really important to first make sure that you get a good identification of the disease so that you're using the right product to control it. Um, This is especially true of our conifers, and we talked a lot about that last spring. But there's lots of different types of fungicides on the market But if we don't select the correct one for the correct disease, we'll probably not get the results that we would like. The second thing that we don't talk about enough is make sure that you read the label and follow the directions. Many times we kind of have that bad habit of thinking more is always better, and that's not always the case. We want to make sure that we apply the correct amount. We want to make sure that we apply it at the right time. in, in other words, if we see a needle disease, we want to make sure and apply it when, when the disease is present or when the label tells us to apply it. That's just so, so important. Um, 
So those are just some key things. And then also make sure that you use the correct clothing. Make sure you're using the proper equipment to, to, um, um, to apply it so that you get the results that you want. And when you mention correct clothing and everything, right. be careful. <laughs> That's right. You know, many of these we, we try to pick and we recommend or we talk about safe use or we try to pick the products that are the safest for both our environment, for the, for the applicator, sure. and for the plants that we're working with. But there's still, there's still chemicals and we still need to sure. respect them. Absolutely. That's for sure. We have an awful lot of people out there that have breathing issues. Exactly. That's skin right. irritants and things like that. That's so right. You know, pay even, attention to what you're doing. Even things as simple as mowing the lawn. Uh, right now, this is the time of year that there's a lot of spores out there. We have a lot of diseases right. you know, mm-hmm. taking place on our lawns and things, although the lawns have kind of slowed down with these high temperatures. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it means just simply wearing a, a, a mask. Yeah, exactly, just to, just to reduce And I, I put the tennis racket away because the locusts are gone. That's good. That's so good. Uh, we don't have, good. don't have to bat them. That's right. That's right. Well, today I wanted to mention, too, a couple of publications uh, I know that uh, it's been difficult to have a great uh, to have a great uh, garden this year, but if you are participating in the farmers' markets, please take a look at some of the publications that that we have. Uh, for example, selling fruits and vegetables. This is kind of a not brand new, but a fairly new publication, and uh, gives you some really great tips on on how to participate in the farmers' markets, how to how to clean your uh, fruits and vegetables, how to present them at the farmers' market. And this is publication PM 1887, and it's simply called Selling Fruits and Vegetables. A couple other new publications that I wanted to mention, and this one's not new by any means, but don't overlook it if you're kind of serious about growing vegetables. Uh, please remember that we have the Midwest Vegetable Production Guide for Commercial Growers. Actually, I think it's an excellent guide uh, for not only commercial growers, but also kind of our serious home gardeners. It does a great job on diseases and products and diseases and insects, but also products to, to save and or products to protect your plants. This is kind of a joint effort between Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, and Missouri. It's on the web. It's a very long public. I mean, it's about 100 pages long, so it's not something that you want to print off. But it is something that you can go to on the web at no cost and simply turn to the different sections like sweet corn or cucumbers or tomatoes or zucchini or the cucurbits or any of those. And it's, a, it's just absolutely a wonderful, wonderful guide to follow. Um, another publication. This is a really nice publication. It's actually a joint effort between the DNR and Iowa State University Extension. This one's called Planning for Wooded Acreages for Woodlands. It is very nicely done. I think we've spoken about this before on our program, but this is a very nice publication if you're interested in woodlands and the management of woodlands. Sometimes we don't talk about that often enough, but our woodlands in southeast Iowa are very important and Absolutely. part of our economy. So. Do take a look at this one. Go, we kind of hang out in the woods for a little while. Exactly. We were fortunate enough to be raised on a property that we had, uh, you know, 10 or 15 acres of woods. And yeah, exactly. It was always fun just to kind of go out. And I, I always had a terrible time identifying trees. Uh, and I, I mean, even have would have people that, you know, seem like they knew right. what trees, uh, right. which ones were which but you know um october 4th gary we're having our forest southeast iowa forestry field day and that's one of the things that we always do at the field day first thing in the morning is we go on what we call a tree identification walk and i think i think that's something that 
I've just enjoyed doing with our foresters and the people that attend. It's it's a lot of fun not only to know about what what if it's an oak or a maple, right? But if it's a red oak or a white oak or a, I mean, it's just it's just so enjoyable. That's where it gets difficult. It is, and it's just so enjoyable to start to identify the trees. We used to always just look at the leaves or look right. at the acorn, and now it's kind of fun. You can take a look at the structure of the tree and kind of identify that, or you can look at the bark color. Or, um, or the height of the tree, or the or the crown of the tree, or the growth habit of that tree, and actually do some identification. So, a publication that is brand new um, is called, and this is this is from Iowa State University Extension, and it's free, and it's a number of pages. So please, it's about twenty five pages long, but it's called Incorporating Prairies into Multifunctional Landscapes. And it's basically talking about establishing and managing prairies for enhanced environmental quality. And this is also true for livestock grazing, hay production, bioenergy production, um, um, and just, uh, just, uh, just a wonderful publication. And um, I was just kind of talking with some of our staff members. I said, boy, this is a great reference for some of our science students who are studying the environment and need to write some maybe write some papers but it's just filled with facts and how to's and i think that's what's really nice about this publication so this one is called incorporating prairies into multifunctional landscapes and it's pmr 1007 and it is definitely available at the lee county extension office at no cost and again that's called corporate incorporating prairies into multifunctional landscapes um so those are some publications. Also, please, just because it's really warm, do not give up on the fall garden. We have some great publications on fall gardening and when to plant and what to plant. And, you know, it's been a tough spring. Hopefully it'll involve a fountain. Exactly. <laughs> some irrigation as well. But, you know, that's right, a fountain. But I tell you, we need to – this fall can really turn out to be a great gardening season. I know we kind of missed out on spring. I've spoken with a number of master gardeners who said, gosh, it's been a tough gardening year just like last year. So don't give up on the year. Okay, we're going to take a break here. Word from our sponsors from Iowa State University, and we'll be right back with Let's Get Growing. Well, down at Gate City Seed, we've been talking about the weather again. It's hot, it's hot, and even though it's a little bit nicer, we still don't get a whole lot done outside, but that's Okay. But the bugs are trying to come inside, too. Hey, it's nice and air-conditioned and cool inside, or we've got a nice breeze inside. Bugs want to come in. We can stop them at Gate City Seed. We have the 38-plus. We have professional strength spray. Gets the bugs. Doesn't get you. We would not sell you anything that is not safe. But this really works. Best thing that even a professional can use. Inexpensive. Available at Gate City Seed Company. Let's fix those bugs. Have a good summer for ourselves inside. Come see us at 824 Main in Keokai. Have you ever noticed a dog or cat eating grass or possibly nibbling on your favorite house plant? Well, there's a reason for that, and joining me is Linda Nay from ISU. And Linda, why do pets eat plants? Well, your pets will start eating your plants when there's a nutritional deficiency in their diet. Cats that go outside will probably nibble on your turf grass and other plants out there to fill that nutrient or vitamin deficiency that they don't get in their pet food. Cats that are stuck indoors will start nibbling on your house plants because of that deficiency. And they should be a little more finicky than they are because there are certain plants that can cause some damage to your cat's internal organs, such as uh, Easter lilies and lilies. These will cause kidney failure and could cause your cat to die if they eat too many of the leaves. Other plants like Boston fern, asparagus fern, um, 
Cyclamen, these plants will cause damage too to your cats. And outdoor plants such as azaleas, hydrangeas, and lily of the valley, there's a whole list of plants that can be hazardous to your pet's health. So these are the things you need to be concerned about. So how do you keep them away? Well, it's really hard to say, tell a cat don't eat on that plant because they're going to do pretty much whatever they please. So what you need to do is introduce a plant that they can eat that's safe for them and that they will enjoy. Cat mint is one that they'll eat on or roll in. Um, another is oat grass, which is cat grass by other name. It's real easy to grow. You can find it at garden centers at this time of year or any pet supply stores. Um, you sow the seed in a six to eight inch pot quite heavily, cover it lightly with soil, water it in well, and set it in a location that receives bright light. And within about two weeks, you'll have a nice sized plant for the plant the cat to enjoy and eat on, and they'll keep away from your house plants. A little bit of a bait and switch then. That's right, and that's a good idea um, for anybody to use. And you can continually add more grass? And you can continually add new pots to them as the old ones get chewed up, and that'll be a great alternative. Great, so that grass is always greener for that's your right. cat. <laughs> All right, thanks. And if you would like more information on pets and plants, be sure to log on to our websites. For Gardening in the Zone, I'm Liz Gelman. KSB Insurance is your hometown trusted choice insurance agency dedicated to meeting all of your personal and business insurance needs. Give us a call or stop in at our Keokuk or Burlington location and let one of our friendly agents work with you to save some green on your insurance. KSB Insurance, protecting what matters to you. And we're back with Let's Get Growing. We've got a couple minutes here to wrap things up. And we were talking a little bit about uh, <laughs> our deer populations and yeah. groundhogs. and Just all kinds of wildlife this year. There's we have it all this no year. No question. You know, I had a question from one of our listeners. I, wanted, I wanted to mention this. I don't think I've spoken about chokeberry before. But chokeberry is an interesting shrub. It really is. And it's really worth talking about and adding to the landscape. It's not one that we've mentioned before, but it's really versatile. It's a, tr a very tough shrub, and the fall color is absolutely spectacular. And probably that's one of the key reasons to add it to our landscape. They, the, this particular choke cherry grows well in full sun, partial shade, but the best flowering and fruiting occur in full sun. It loves well-drained soils, average fertility, and adapts to most soils and tolerates both wet, dry, or poor, poor soils. So this is a good one to use when things are kind of tough grow or kind of some difficult growing conditions. Up to one-third of the stems, preferably the older ones, can be pruned out annually once the flowering is finished. And the choke cherry is useful in a shrub or mixed border. It also makes an interesting low-maintenance specimen plant by itself. And left to its own devices, the choke cherry will naturalize to cover a fairly large area. The choke uh, berry fruit requires a lot of sweetening to make it palatable. Its bitterness um, does have an advantage, however, that the birds avoid eating it, so the red or black fruit persists from time. It appears in mid-fall through right through winter. So... This is one of those that take a look at. It's called chokeberry. Uh, again, uh, does have uh, the white. The flower color is white. Height of about three to ten feet. Spread of about three to ten feet, and fits very nicely right into our hardiness zone. So there you go. Does very well. Well, we got to wrap things up for Let's Get Growing this week. We want to thank everybody for tuning in each Saturday morning at seven twenty on KOKX AM thirteen ten. From all of us here at KOKX Studios in one hundred eight Washington. Thanks for listening.